Rounding the Earth audience. I uh, hope you're having a wonderful evening as we get closer to Christmas. Uh, hope that uh, ho hopefully you're not all working this week. Uh, hopefully uh, some of you are taking some time off um, or, or at least uh, take some time off on Christmas, uh, spend some time with the family. Uh, when is Christmas this year? It might be a weekend. It might be uh, easier for, for some people. Well, anyhow, uh, well, t tonight we're doing something a little bit different. I don't normally podcast at night, not as much anyhow, just when we have uh, um, people come in who uh, who have a day job, but have something uh, really cool to share with us. And this is one of those times. Uh, we've got uh, Nick, who goes by Pizza Pickles Per on Twitter. And uh, Nick is known for, um, he's a few but ripe kind of guy. He, he does deep dives into very interesting topics. And tonight he's uh, joining us to talk about Operation Paperclip, which I think more people should know about, especially with uh, so much talk over the last couple of years about Nuremberg trials and things like that. I think uh, uh, Operation Paperclip and, and uh, you know, a good accounting of Nuremberg may change the way people think about what the Nuremberg trials really were. But I'm going to bring Nick in now and I'm going to let him uh, introduce himself. Um, any further than that, he's going to go anonymous here. But uh, Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. How's my uh, sound level? Oh, it sounds great. Okay, fantastic. Well, it's good to, good to meet you and and finally have a chance to discuss some some cool stuff. And hello, everybody. Um, I'm an independent investigator. I have uh, I've dabbled in an academic scientific past, uh, but I didn't choose to take a career in it. And as the result of uh, things that happened in our 1980s and 90s, I sort of went uh, down the rabbit hole, as they say, into some different areas of research. Um, first and foremost, as the result of uh, finding information and, and material published by uh, HIV lab origin whistleblowers. And that's uh, a whole nother rabbit hole, but it does link together back in the past with our topic tonight, which is uh, the Project Paperclip and related activities. So yeah. go ahead, please, Matthew. It's eerie how much, um, how much does connect together with regards to what is going on today during the pandemic. Um, do you know who they are, uh, Director of National Intelligence is? Uh, uh, today, I don't. I don't try to keep track. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It's it's Avril Haynes is her okay. name. Okay. And her father is a uh, Rockefeller University biologist who studies cell death. Well, that's kind of germane. Yeah, I just thought I'd throw that little piece of trivia out there. Because, you know, I, it, it, it sounds like it might be relevant. It does. It does. And um, one of the issues as we look at paperclip um, is for those of you that I'm sure there's probably many of you who have some degree of exposure to it or those of you that might be newer to it. I'll say tonight I'm, I'm a student. I'm happy to take a lesson anytime someone has some material uh, or insights that are, uh, you know, add sort of to the puzzle pieces. Um, but where this intersects with the HIV story, I think really goes a long way back. You mentioned Rockefeller, and we can go further back into Carnegie, into eugenics, uh, into Great Britain. You know, it's quite it's quite fascinating how far this rabbit hole goes. If we're trying to find sort of where is the root of this um, psychopathy of uh, deciding that we're just going to cull certain portions of the planetary population or use them as guinea pigs and in, in horrific experiments 
um, you know, and, and other activities. So it's it's a big, difficult and black pill. Um, and a lot of folks don't know about the American and British connections to the philosophies inside of this. But let's come back to, I don't know, let's try to pick sort of a starting point if we're going to say Operation Paperclip. Um, are you a scholar in this space? I do not want to bring my, you know, my toys to the playground and find out that you're a master ninja. Uh, I, I've done um, a decent amount of reading, and and I'll go ahead and tell you, um, it. I, I keep ridiculous notes. Uh, I'm assiduous about documenting things. So, like mm -hmm. since the beginning of the pandemic, I've taken uh, between my notes and my writing, I've got about twenty thousand pages, um, which you know, uh, pages in like, you know, Word document form. So that mm -hmm. would probably be like, you know, 35,000 pages of a book. Uh, <laughs> so I have just, I, I've got just archives and archives and archives. But um, I have, I have a very disjointed set of notes on Operation Paperclip because I never, I, I, I everything I see, I document, but that doesn't mean that I've organized my notes. Right. Okay. So a lot of times I just, you know, like I want to take one day and go back and read through all my notes on something before I write an article about it, mm -hmm. but I haven't done it with the Operation Paperclip. So I'm, I'm real interested though. Obviously I do take notes on it, but no, I'm not the history buff on this one. Well, and like I said, I'm, I'm a student. I went into this piece of the history because it seemed uh, very much like I was following a root system underneath a plant and as well as the other OG whistleblowers about HIV. So uh, I, I didn't start with it uh, as sort of the center, as the locus, but it's fascinating how much ties back to it. Uh, have you read the work of Annie Jacobson? Sorry, Matthew, did I lose you? There we go. Apologies, no, you didn't. Um, I, I'm, trying, I'm being sneaky here, I'm trying to to eat dinner are you trying to snack okay i'm sorry no, 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 no i can i'll run my i've i've kissed the blarney stone so I, I'll give you a I, I had i had, some food in you. I, had I had the the jimmy john's delivered oh no 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 I you got, got it no we gotta take i'll stop breaking in with questions no no, no no totally fine totally fine. I'll, I'll probably be done in like five minutes anyway okay okay <laughs> i should have well, waited no it's okay no 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 please feed yourself so that you're in good shape um i i appreciate i've i've been to your sub stack and um, have been, uh, you know, as I am with so many people who, uh, whether they're lettered scientist or career scientist or citizen scientist, I think there's a continuum there. Um, but just your approach to, uh, say, just collecting a data set and what you included, what you excluded, I appreciate it very much, you know, your critical thinking. Um, and really, so you understand what is the closest scientific label for me, I think it's a medical anthropologist. So I, I can't argue um, fearing cleavage sites with you, but I can go back and illustrate uh, certain aspects of public health, private and public research, the public-private relationships, uh, and what they afforded in privacy for the development of things that came out of Project Paperclip. That's really where I can do more justice to the fine detail. But back in this space, I, the reason I ask about Annie Jacobson is she wrote Operation Paperclip. And uh, she did a book tour just a few years ago. Fantastic uh, research and very well sourced. Um, I also appreciate the work of Dr. Len Horowitz. He has a large section in his book called uh, Emerging Viruses, AIDS and Ebola. 
And uh, there's a lot uh, that he does to help stitch together the activities that occurred in Paperclip at the uh, end of World War II and how that fed into different sorts of channels in science and medicine and biological warfare. Um, so that's another recommended piece of reading. Uh, and there are folks in their bibliographies that, you know, you can keep going on this stuff if you want. Um, but the real, you know, the underlying issue is this. The thought about the Nuremberg trials uh, really is in, in many, you know, in many folks' eyes, they see that as a punctuated end to the war that there were some hangings, there were hearings, there was justice. They, they saw it happen. They saw black and white pictures of someone standing in a courtroom listening to a translator and being sentenced to death. What they don't understand um, is the great uh, scurrying, the great, the great uh, uh, hurrying about of gathering bits and pieces uh, during the end of the war and after the war. Uh, it seems that there was really sort of an arc now, I've learned of an early operation that happened and began in 1943. Uh, and this was the uh, the Alsos mission. And this preempted paperclip, but it really set the table for it. And this was the inclusion of American scientists embedded in certain operational units that went over to Europe. And their purpose was specifically uh, to be available to help evaluate and assess the uh, the materials that they might come across if they uh, should happen to find a scientific enclave or production facility or a research laboratory. Um, but also in that process to build as quickly as they could a network of names. Uh, because it appears that quite similarly to what occurred in the United States in the 1950s until today, where biodefense has outsourced its its risks and its legal obligations into the academic domain in a large part meaning they've they've moved near shore and now with places like wuhan offshore uh things that are questionable according to international law with regards to uh gain of function and bio biodefense conventions but coming back to this early period of 1943 to 1945, we had folks boots on the ground, searching, looking for, investigating, finding caches of documents, finding individuals who are willing to talk um, and gathering scientists already. And we had uh, a German scientists uh, before they were, I guess, acutely, uh, overtly Nazi um, over in the Rockefeller Center. Uh, there was a major yellow fever campaign that concluded just before the war. Uh, and that's main scientists went back over and and became prominent in the Nazi party. So there's a very it's a very interesting interplay of where does it begin? You're trying to find the thread where it starts. And um, our science background, uh, just as just as our heritage background intermingles with Germany, and Germany has been and continues to be a center of scientific innovation and standard setting. And we also have to disambiguate that reality from companies that we used to buy their products off the shelf. And then the war started and they were producing horrible products for the Nazi party. 
And then the war ended and they rebranded and were back to buying their products off the, the drugstore shelf. It's, it's a very interesting and, and loose relationship we have with all of this history. Um, but I'll tell you, the, the biological thread that I was following went back from people who were trying to weaponize vaccines. And in particular, were, uh, were exploring and uh, messing around with uh, primate viruses and the exchange of uh, different types of particles, they call them isolated or filterable particles from a number of presentations of human disease. They were trying to say, hey, this disease is, pre is presenting, where did it come from? And doing empirical science and finding in some consistency, different classifications of pathogens. And that's where they were beginning to see the interplay of the use of animals as an experimental source of material in human medicine and research. Uh, and then the presentation and emergence of these diseases in human beings. But that didn't just start happening in the 50s. That had been going on for some time. There's been experimentation in this space. And the biological horrors that many of us read about in uh, our history books, uh, the way that we seem to have been uh, asked to look at Nazi Germany and the kinds of conduct that they got up to in the camps or in a laboratory or with their slave labor. Um, unfortunately, is bereft of um, a moral mirror. Uh, there's there's a moral compass that we all need to take a look at, and that's what did we, you know, how did we influence what occurred during the war, and then what did we do uh, as we began seeing these amazing intellects that were creating horrifying weapons, but that America and the Defense Department clearly coveted, and they wanted to uh, pursue. Let me just pause there. That's been that's been uh, a couple of mouthfuls. Anything about all of that you'd like to go back and double click on? Uh, no, but uh, I, I did. I didn't want to ask. Um, did Hitler send monkey into space? Oh, I believe that. Uh, I I thought that von Braun did that once he was at NASA. It might have occurred during the Nazi time. I have. Uh, quite frankly, there's so much material. The further you go back and you realize history is actually much more fascinating than Netflix in most cases, um, particularly, yeah, I, again, uncovering this kind of stuff. And, but, and just, just to be clear, I, I was making a joke anyway. I, I just, uh, I was, I was kind of looking, looking up history, um, <laughs> you know, kind of taking notes along with you while you're sure. talking. And, uh, sure. and you know, you, you wind up with the tabloid stuff thrown in. Well, yeah, and it's that uh, it's that men in black effect of uh, what you can find in the National Enquirer. You never know. It's like, okay, how did they learn about that? How did Chris Carter um, learn all of those quite uh, foreboding and and uh, and frightening omens about you know coming the coming plague? There's been a couple of clips from his uh, from the X Files going around. Uh, that's always fascinating to wonder how did people learn about it. Um, so there there's another couple of sort of we'll say swim lanes to what the paperclip scientists were about there were categorizations just as there are in science um you know we just heard a couple of days ago about um, a fusion breakthrough that there was a net positive energy production in a fusion experiment which has been the focus of of a lot of money and a lot of effort for for decades um, and that's one of the spaces, and that would be physics and exotic physics and energy uh, that seemed to be part of the work that paperclip scientists were assigned to. 
and it appears that some of them intermingled in the uh we'll say the majestic 12 space uh and that right there puts my toe on you know one of those edgy topics of uh area 51 and uh you know ufos and all of that but guess what there's some weird stuff that's happened and if you don't know about it we're going to keep learning more and more about it i feel safe bringing that up right now because the defense department in may came out of the closet and said yeah we've we've been running a misinformation campaign for the last 70 years and we have programs and we certainly you know we certainly know a lot more than we've let on so i'm i'm happy to be able to say that without you know without putting on my tinfoil hat so that was one of the other swim lanes was uh, exotic science. And one area that I would encourage you to look at is the work of T. Thompson Brown uh, and these early, uh, we'll say, new energy or free energy or exotic effect, you know, the, the particle physicists and theoretical physicists. Um, T. Thompson Brown did some work involving uh, activity that I believe was connected later to the Philadelphia experiment. And what he what he produced in the lab was um, running some very specifically modified current, some quite specific, uh, I, you know, I don't know the secret formula, but I've heard it described. And it's about um, the waveform. And they were attempting, apparently, allegedly, to work on some new forms of welding. They were trying to do uh, some sort of fusion welding. And what ended up was he caused a phasing effect in the laboratory. And certain, because of the shape of the material that he was working with, certain things around it uh, phased out of, uh, I guess we'll say, our time space, 3D space, and other things sort of half materialized in something else. Um, that was one reported incident. And some of the documentation I've seen in that space is quite fascinating. So if you ever get bored, go over and look at, uh, at that space. And then, of course, probably the best known swim lane about paperclip is the propulsion scientist, is the rocket scientist led by Werner von Braun. And if you haven't seen a picture of him with his broken arm as they were uh, surrendering with most of the team, you know, very large cash, a good win for the allies in finding that, that lab in Austria, he came over and became the darling of Western rocket science and helped us win, you know, the race to the moon and was involved in a number of quite uh, interesting uh, propulsion technologies and experiments and uh, worked in a number of different uh, DOD and intelligence groups uh, around the East Coast primarily. But Werner von Braun is his own master you know, study that should be examined. And this is a good grounding point for anyone that's having trouble believing that this happened or the scope of it, meaning the number of scientists that were brought over uh, you know, we all, we all, we can't say, Hey, everything is world war two, but if we're going to look at paperclip, you have to put your mind back into the state of the war. And it was looking very grim and the world had never had a conflict of that scale. Uh, and the types of weapons, uh, were escalating and the V2 rocket science was certainly improving. Uh, and so that's kind of the backdrop around, why the U.S. Defense Department went after these people, and, and people should know. Stuff. And people should know, like uh, the level of firepower, intellectual firepower involved, was enough that when Werner von Braun and his team, and then other teams, in order to complement and support their efforts, were brought to Huntsville, Alabama, 
it turned Huntsville, Alabama into the most educated city by counting PhDs per capita in the entire world. And um, interestingly, I've been on uh, Werner von Braun's old street because I used to run uh, educational programs in Huntsville. And so I had uh, a lot of uh, students who, whose parents were, you know, um, uh, some of NASA's smarter minds, or at least the ones still in Huntsville since they split off into Texas also, into Houston. Um, one, one weird interesting story from that is um, there was a family, and I'm not going to mention who they were or who, who they are, because uh, it, it, it is, you know, you brought up the, the interesting, like, energy physics stories, right? Yes. So it turns out the very first working light bulb was in Huntsville, Alabama. And this is long before World War II even, or World War I even. But almost nobody knows this because the guy who created these light bulbs and had several of them going um, was murdered. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's one of several stories surrounding the invention of the light bulb that make you kind of scratch your head. Another one is the fact that um, that before... Um, uh, Thomas Edison supposedly invented the light bulb. There was a patent for one mm -hmm. in Canada, but even before that, there was a functioning light bulb in, in Huntsville, Alabama. There's some uh, brilliant families there, some very interesting stories. And, but, and I, and I've seen what, what I'm told was, um, the, the remains of the first light bulb. That's fascinating serendipity, uh, because one of the topics that I was hoping to talk about was Huntsville, Alabama. So are you born and raised? Very interesting. Uh, I was born in Birmingham. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, my school had like a, a rivalry with um, the math team at, at uh, Grissom High School, which was, you know, where a lot of uh, NASA's kids went. Sure. Okay. Okay. So, and I'm going to use some vocabulary. I'm not trying to be uh, crass here. Uh, did you know of the uh, area of town that was known as Kraut Hill? Yeah. Okay. Did you go up to that neighborhood? Um, uh, yes, when I was in high school, before I really understood the significance of it. Mm -hmm. It didn't look different than the rest of the neighborhoods, did it? It wasn't a Bavarian village. Uh, you know, you didn't, it, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't like one of those little uh, enclaves of Bavarian culture in the middle of Chile you know, or, or Argentina, right? It wasn't, it didn't have those trappings. It looks like a period American neighborhood. I've done just Google streets and gone around uh, that. And it's, it's surrounded. The area we're talking about in Huntsville is, and I don't want to dox any space, so I'm not going to get too specific, but it's surrounded by um, some parkland and woodland. It's a very nice green yeah, neighborhood. And cows. That's actually what you would notice. Well, that's cows. what you would have noticed. That's what you would have noticed um, 28 years ago was the smell of cows. It's the smell of cows. Um, so uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's an interesting, I, I'm not quite sure how to put my finger on how to uh, reconcile how we feel about it or how we deal with it. Um, but there are, it's not, it's not just this cadre of, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand individual, generally mostly men who came over as these scientific, you know, this cash, it was their families who would eventually join them. And it was uh, generations that they would give birth to. And they were initially uh, listed as definitely a direct and acute threat to the United States. It's, uh, it's not quite a quote, but I, just, I was just doing some refresh and saw them being characterized. And there were a couple of 
landing zones. There was a camp in DC. Uh, there's a Netflix special on that. I'm sorry, I, d I didn't get the, the title of it, but there's uh, if you just go through Netflix documentaries and say Nazi or World War II, you'll, you'll be able to find it. And it's an animated histology. So it's actual recordings of National Parks uh, employees who worked this camp. And it was essentially out in the middle of the woods, out in the middle of nowhere. And it was a uh, sort of a little, you know, like a very basic um, hotel setup with uh, a, a pool and, you know, place to, you know, there was a recreation hall, there was a church, there, there was, you know, a lot of amenities. And then occasionally they'd be allowed to go out and uh, uh, do shopping for their families back in Europe, like at Christmas time. There's a story that one of them tells about uh, people catching on to who these folks are and causing a scene and them having to jump in the car and go back to the base. So um, there's lots of little pockets of where these people ended up, depending upon what they were doing. And uh, they began immediately being stitched into our biowarfare space if they were biological scientists. Uh, some of them were actually stationed at some of our earliest facilities that did uh, chemical biological weapons. And clearly, uh, I think the Nazis demonstrated that they were, I, I think just, you know, my guts, my gut says they were more advanced in the chemistry, uh, maybe physiology, and that more, uh, if we were looking at Axis powers, you know, the Japanese were more advanced in, in uh, infectious disease. Uh, and in the pathology space, it seemed. Uh, and, you know, I haven't actually been able to find a whole lot of names that are Japanese about paper clips. And that's another piece of this that kind of factors in. It's kind of a quiet aspect because most folks are wowed to find out that our big rocket scientists sent us, you know, got us to the moon first, if you believe that sort of thing. So I've been I've been running my mouth a while. Where would you like to go back and circle back or take some comments or questions or drill in in a different direction i'm happy to go where you like um you know where, where you feel like your paths have have gone in interesting directions but well, you know, if, if if there are questions from the crowd um uh house of Tonic mentioned that uh the mentor of um eric traub was uh richard Chope. Yes. And uh, Mark is fantastic with these etiologies. I, I'm always just, you know, like I said, I'm a student for a lot of you. And he, you know, he has raised the bar for me in a lot of these topics. Um, and the public health roles, the university roles, the biodefense roles for the biological scientists, as I said, was immediate, if not a return to the U.S., you know, like I said, for some that had had worked with the Rockefeller Foundation and then become Nazi lead scientists and then returned or went to work in Europe as we did have a ongoing sort of a harvesting process uh, set up at one of their bases. And they uh, continued to recruit and collect scientists that had sort of slipped out, you know, through the cracks and then popped up in a university or in a private practice here or there, and then been identified and brought back. So I don't know how long uh, that was, uh, let's see, project, I believe called Project 63. And the underlying mission statement was to deny enemies, mainly Russia, of the opportunity to find and employ these people. So there was definitely uh, a case of, of you know, go get them. You know, it, it was an uh, Easter egg hunt. 
And um, I've seen materials more recently. And I'll tell you, when I, when I see anything through the television, it's bittersweet because I'm so concerned about, uh, you know, you, first of all, you don't get any source documents unless they stop and show you them. That's, that's sometimes they'll do that. Um, but I'm just so concerned about narrative control, um, material being changed or omitted, gerrymandering uh, a narrative, things like that. But I'll say I really do recommend um, a series. I think they had three seasons uh, called Hunting Hitler. And the value in this work is that they apparently put together all of the historic archives, enough of the paper clips and the Nazis had died. So that apparently they felt it was okay for the History Channel to do a documentary series. Um, but they do really expose their method of data aggregation, elimination, chasing down leads. Um, they, you know, they really seem to bring to bear the very best uh, tools and minds. And they go all over the world. Um, there's a lot of locations in Europe. I think they do find the actual cemetery where Hitler is buried. Uh, this was supposedly in Spain that he went into hiding. Uh, but then that seems to contradict reports of his uh, living at least for some period of time in South America. Um, but hunting Hitler goes after physical evidence. It goes after eyewitnesses, some that were from the period, some that were sons and daughters of people involved in the history. It follows the rat lines out of Germany. Uh, it follows them into Norway and then uh, to the east coast of Africa, west coast of Africa, and then to South America, uh, and then all over a number of physical sites. And they find, you know, clearly they find physical archives of uh, artifacts of Nazi materials, you know, German pottery, uh, German art in these extremely rugged stone little houses built out in the middle of nowhere in the woods. So it is, so, this is really interesting. What, what was the name of this? It's a, a series, it's a series called Hunting Hitler. Hunting Hitler, okay. And I just saw it in the last couple of years. And what was so impressive is the volume of physical material that they find. I don't want to give away. I mean, I've already, I've already done spoiler alert on a lot of things, but they do a fantastic job of starting with the written archive. And I'm talking about FBI, CIA, DOD, and other countries. I'm sure there's plenty not to be spoiled, but I find this one particularly interesting because uh, early, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, or actually I, I closed a business toward the end of 2016 mm -hmm. and just began reading volumes of history because I, I didn't even know what I wanted to do with myself next. You know, I closed down uh, the last school that I ran. And one of the things that I happened to, you know, uh, open up a book and start reading was, um, was how it was that it was decided that Hitler had died. And, and you know, I, I read and I stop and I think, and I'm, and I'm like, I'm like, who actually believes this story, right? Like the, the, like the reason that we supposedly believe that, you know, Hitler died at the bunker was just one, that was a Nazi announcement. Then two, the Soviets got there first and said they that, did that it was, it was ash and a couple of bones, including a skull plate. With they a took possession of the skull, didn't and they? And they, they took possession and, um, and immediately, you know, Truman and Eisenhower both thought that it was a hoax and both, both voiced that opinion. How right? many body doubles had he, had he reportedly kept around? Right. And, and, and the allies did find a dead body double of Hitler at the bunker. 
So like there, there's all this weirdness surrounding all of this. Um, and, and the fact that, that the president and the general, you know, both didn't think it was true, but even that, like I I've tried, um, uh, I I've got that in my notes somewhere, but even when I, when I try to get on a search engine and search, Truman didn't think Hitler died at the bunker. You can't find anything. You can't find anything. If I hadn't accidentally stumbled upon somebody talking about this on the internet, I would have had no idea. So, you know, clearly the internet is scrubbed for this type of material, which even like even more, you know, tells me I should be interested in this, right? There is something very important here in history, right? And and, and then like the, the bone samples that the Soviets took um, were not even tested until uh, right about 10 years ago. And, so uh, I'm very glad that we brought up this series. I don't promote television series, you know, but I just it's because of the volume of physical material, physical evidence, the technologies and the techniques that they employed that you're going to be thoroughly satisfied about their quantitative and objective approach to the work. Um, it's it's wonderful hunting Hitler. Yeah, it's no, it's going to scratch that itch that you were just talking about. I'm not going to give any more away. You you know you're going to probably binge watch it, um, and it's um, you know it 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 tries to have that a little bit of that bump bump bump. You know the the police investigative drama. You know here and there they have to. You know it's television, so forgive them that. Uh, and look over their shoulder at what in the world they find and the people that they speak to and the evidence that they uh, that you get to see with your own eyes. They put the camera on the material, um, you know, and you are there at the source all over the world where this stuff is uncovered. So it will, I think, disambiguate um, that portion of, you know, any questions you've got about was there a breakaway group? How successful were they? And it appears to me that it's quite a complex process that some of them clumped together and some of them stole away with their own little cache of gold. You know, Bilbo Baggins went and, and found some place to hide under a hill uh, and became a university professor or uh, a podiatrist. You know, you never know where they pop up. Um, so that's that's another interesting part of this is that Paperclip doesn't tell the story of everything that happened after the war. What it's very, very important is to understand is that this was quite an intentional and calculated uh, and involved operation that really tried to suck the marrow out of the bone. They tried to find everyone they could and deny Mother Russia of having access to those individuals. And of course, you know, that's spy versus spy. Then there we are in the Cold War. What have you got here? Uh, nearly the whole story, but uh, here we have um, the Soviet Union responded by relocating 2,200 German specialists. I didn't realize that the Soviets got a hold of quite so many. They did. They they got they got quite a handful, and the parallels of the scientific outcrop that occurred both in the West and in Russia is. I think that would be an interesting, you know, if you were a planetary anthropologist, you could um, compare all of the bits and pieces. Um, there was a lot of resonance um, and it was very much like, you know, uh, just grabbing toys off of the board. Um, I, I don't know if there was a coherent strategy to the Russian program. 
uh, I know that Russian science and the Nazi Russian science is, is equally fascinating. Um, and I do know that there's one aspect of the Russian work that um, bears more. This is here we go back towards the woo woo. Sorry for being woo woo tonight, folks. But we're you know, we're talking about some strange and interesting uh, investigators uh, is the work in the psychic space. And that's where I'm going to come back and I'll see your I used to take students around Huntsville, Alabama, and I'll raise you a my best friend is from Huntsville, Alabama. And he was recruited in his early teens to become part of a uh, military defense uh, psychic, young psychic spy program. Yeah, I was too. Yeah, the remote viewing project. Yes. Yeah, I was part of that. Uh, is there any particular male doctor that you remember involved uh, in that, uh, in the instruction and in the exercises? Doc, do you remember? No. Go ahead. Dr. Neely? No, no. Doctor, uh, like, do I remember a doctor? No. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. It's been it, some time, clearly. It was, uh, it was no, no. It was uh, men in army uniforms. Uh, uh, okay. But there was a civilian doctor that my friend spent really, really resonates about. Um, and, uh, was, you know, he was introduced to, uh, Akashic texts. What I mean by that are, uh, texts that are not available in any library, uh, sort of esoteric learning. Uh, and, you know, it set him on a path throughout his life, um, to look at, in history, in, in Buddhism and in Hinduism and wherever, you know, in any, in any society where they have this, uh, higher skill level, Matthew, that, that sort of set him on a path to quietly continue looking at that. That's one of his fascinations. Wow, this is somebody, this is somebody I would really love to talk to. When I tell people about this, I can tell that, um, lots of people just don't believe me. Like, well, you can start by saying, what is Gestalt? Describe Gestalt to me in the context of a human-human interaction. And if people don't know what that is uh, or have any hint about uh, connection, I I was just speaking, uh, <laughs> I was just doing a Christmas holiday uh, meal with a young family that I know, and there are twins, a boy and a girl. I'm not going to say names. I'm not going to say their ages. They were old enough to have a slightly adult question. I didn't have a conversation with them about this, but I asked a question and they're both incredibly smart, very, very alert. Um, and I asked each of them, have you had experiences where you understood what was occurring for your sibling when they were nowhere around over at a friend's house, they were still at school. You were someplace completely different, but you knew that they were, they were hurt or they were very upset. And they both independently confirmed that they were like, yes. And I said, have you had any experiences where you could hear uh, the other person's thinking? You could see uh, maybe something they were wondering about or words that they were they were saying in their own mind. And they they denied having had any experiences like that. But they were fascinated. They were like, wow, how did you know about that? And I was like, well, there's a lot of people that are fascinated with twins. So please. Yeah, I, I just wanted to mention, um, I, I personally believe that the entire program was a hoax, like was the, the whole thing was horseshit. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I, you know, I like I experienced, uh, you know, results being falsified. Um, but you know, I, I'll, I'll mention this, I was five, six, seven, eight years old, uh, watching through mm -hmm. all this, but, um, you know, I paid a lot of attention. 
because uh, the the general who ran this um, actually talked about vaccine genocide. And so you're it, kidding. It's part of the reason why I, you know, like my antenna went up, you know, really, really hardcore, <laughs> you know, like as in I felt, you know, panicked and paranoid when people started talking about the vaccines. Um, I had actually, um, actually, after 2020, I was kind of exhausted and was like, I don't even care to do any of this anymore, any of this research. But a friend of mine um, who was a vaccine manufacturer called me, you know, bawling on the phone was like, she was like, you have to look at the data. You have to start looking at this. Mm -hmm. And it just made me feel, you know, like, like heightened sense of alert, panicked. But, but, um, you, you know, I, I, I don't know uh, the details of all these experiments, but I will say this: that uh, that what I saw seemed in, seemed more like a uh, a twisted psychology experiment than anything that had any kind of paranormal paranormal success at all. More and, like an MK Ultra. Um, you know, it, it, there there weren't, as far as I know, drugs involved, um, but there was a lot of like you know teaching of psychological manipulation. Mm -hmm. And I had a brother who was very, very good at it. Um, he would, uh, he would sort of run experiments on people, like just to see what he could get them to believe. Mm -hmm. And that would include things like, um, like he got a group of kids that we had just met. He, by the way, he was, um, very attractive, very, um, you know, silver tongue, uh, you know, uh, very, very magnetic. Okay. And so, you know, he could walk into like, you know, open space. Nobody knows anybody. 30 kids within 15 minutes. He's the king. And I mean, like, like you'd never seen anywhere before. He's the king. Mm -hmm. It was, it was very much like what people say is like a Bill Clinton sort of effect. Right. So, um, he, he was also, he, you know, he was a musician, you know, he was the rock and roll uh, star. So anyway, he, uh, one day uh, we were with a group of about six other kids uh, between our ages, uh, some a little younger, some a little older. Um, I think my oldest brother was playing uh, soccer. And so, you know, we were, we were hanging out, just talking to other kids and, and he convinced all the other kids that they'd all seen a flying saucer together. And it took him, it, it was a matter of minutes. And it, I mean, and he, he even told me that he was going to do it before we, you know, went and met these kids. And so I had a really disturbing experience at the end of high school. After graduation, I saw a girl who'd been there and I didn't realize that we graduated the same year. And I'd seen her just like once between, you know, these two times. And I, I talked to her and I mentioned that my brother had kind of fooled everybody into thinking that they'd all seen a UFO together. And she freaked out. She, she refused to believe me and was so angry with me that I suspect that she would never speak to me again. As in, I mean, you know, not that she was somebody I knew well or anything like that, but it was like, it was like I had made an enemy by explaining to her what had happened. So by, it, yeah, by conceding, saying, sorry about that. That was uh, all, yeah, smoke and mirrors. And yeah. she, she wasn't ready. Well, there's... There's cognitive dissonance in action right there. It's like, well, that's that's the discomfort. And it it doesn't people don't say, I'm having cognitive dissonance. They say, hey, asshole. You know, that's it's not uh it's not always well received when we rattle people's cages. Well, that's that's a fascinating piece of serendipity about your background. 
Um, I don't know anyone else from that part of the U.S. until uh, my my friend came into my life a few years ago, and I was quite uh, grateful that he was willing to discuss his experiences. Um, by the way, uh, you know, I I think that uh, the fact that you are quite young in the program is something to consider. And there are a great number of echoes of this work and this, this uh, school of thought, we'll say, um, in history, across cultures, across time. You probably already know that. And it is not a technique that can be learned, like how to make a cake. Not everyone is going to have necessarily the faculties or the sensitivities to do it well. But uh, if, you, if you continue forward, if you looked at the work that they did scanning Ingo Swan while he was performing remote viewing and then having a, apparently some effect and success at being able to cloak his ability, meaning uh, stifle his ability with a particular magnetic field. They could shut it off. That was quite an interesting paper. So that's worth looking at. You know, some some more empirical insight on someone who was a, I think, quite a pronounced gifted individual uh, and quite unusual too. I don't think that the Defense Department ever got what they were hoping for out of it because they were thinking, well, if we just give the right mixture of LSD and, and uh, you know, uh, yo yoga and who knows what, maybe we can switch on these capabilities and have psychic warriors. And, um, I, you know, that's quite clearly you know, a fool's errand. But uh, God knows what they were thinking in the 1960s with Vietnam. So where would you like to go from here and what kind of a time frame? Are we on a 60 minute clock tonight? Are we, uh, what are we doing? I'm, concerned. I'm on whatever clock you want to be on. Okay. Okay. Um, well, yeah, like, all, like we've, we've covered a lot of ground. I so. just love to hear other people's research. Well, sure. Sure. So again, I'll, I'll come back to the biology piece of this, why this was so difficult for me to learn about. And I didn't and wouldn't put my nose down into the research the FOIA documents, not opinion pieces, um, but, you know, real, real evidence of names, institutions, um, dates, activities, uh, is that I, I, I had my own case of, uh, of confirmation bias. I, I did not want to put the square peg in the star-shaped hole. Didn't want to do it. Um, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't have an ultra patriotism. I, I wasn't idealistic in that way, but quite frankly, what most people experienced HIV AIDS to be and what, um, gay people experienced it to be is night and day. And I was a young gay guy and I wasn't really at risk from AIDS back in the early years when it was extremely, you know, people would get it and they'd be dead in months. Um, but, um, it certainly affected my life and changed everything about it for the rest of my life. So that's for people say, I don't care what you know until I know why you care. That's why I care about this stuff. Um, I, I had to go back and face the whistleblowers because I encountered some early publishers, lettered scientists who brought forward information. And in the whistleblowers material was this uh, inextricable tie back to the Nazis the paperclip program and the defense and intelligence communities getting in bed with it and being just fine with it. Something I just read again, I hadn't read it for a long time, but there's a, there's a wonderful piece. I'll put a, I'll put a link up in the, in the chat. 
Um, it's a book, I think, from 1985 or 84. Uh, and she did an amazing series of, uh, of FOIAs and was talking about the just the coldness uh, and the calculation of where these people would be placed. And it seemed like there was sort of a monstrous um, oblivion, we'll say sociopathy or psycho psychopathy. Um, but again, I have empathy. I don't make excuses for it. I don't, I'm not saying that it was a right path, but I do have a sense of empathy for what the world's mindset was at the end of the war and them thinking we've got to get these people and not let anybody else have them. What I can't understand is why they didn't, under, you know, clearly see from the beginning that when you eat the poison, you will become the monster. And it seems like that's what happened. Well, here, here's and, another possible please. take on that. What's that? So um, one, one thing that I've always wondered is if the U.S.-Soviet rivalry was something that was propped up and, you know, created. And, you know, what we know is that, uh, like, J.P. Morgan uh, helped fund a particular wing of the Bolsheviks. Um, you know, may have, may have, you know, they may not have even been Bolsheviks to begin with. They may have just been people who infiltrated the Bolshevik revolution and took it over. So, you know, what was the establishment of the Soviet Union, the establishment of sort of a, a fake, you know, state banked from the outside? Um, you know, interestingly, Mao took Western money as well. Right. And of course, the West was, you know, quite dominant in China. You know, after the uh, opium wars and, you know, even when, you know, they had a six year old emperor, Pinyi, um, you know, abdicate. Right. But he. The power was already gone. They were just waiting for somebody who couldn't really lose face, right, to to bring about the next era. But you know, when we look at the U.S.-Soviet rival, right, how much of it might be puppeteered, and how much of the split of the Nazi scientists between those two groups was to create the Cold War rivalry that would exist? Because when you think about it, um, all of your you know bureaucratic elites. I mean, it, that, that's what raised the world into domination by bureaucratic elites. Well, this seems to be a game that's been going on prior to the last 70 years. Um, if we talk about bankers, if we talk about puppeteering and hand in glove, uh, playing both sides of the conflict and, and getting a margin on both sides. You know, that's, that's one piece of it. That's one aspect of it. And that's called war profiteering. And that's a, a pretty a pretty clear case of moral deficit. Um, and we don't have to look far to understand the mechanics of why people get pulled into it and why they keep doing it. Speaking of war profiteers, um, one of the interesting pieces that I found in the AIDS research was a long-term contractor that was one of the dogs of war named Lytton Bionetics. They had Litton Industries, Bionetics Laboratories. They had about five or six different little subsidies. Um, but uh, this is one example of that, you know, when it comes to tracing all of these things back to the modern day. And where, can, you know, where do we get our hands around this? Where, where can we make an effect on all of this sort of vaporous history um, and things that we feel may be seeded into things all around us, major institutions? But this 
Lytton Bionetics entity was one of many who took this blood money and they produced material. They, they had objectives handed to them from the defense and intelligence handlers, and they went and found the right scientist, one of them being Dr. Robert Gallo. And Dr. Gallo was set to the, the task of looking for primate cancer-causing pathogens from the very beginning. And that's what SIV is, which is the primate uh, template, the hearth of human HIV. Um, and these entities, like I said, we talked about IG Farben turning into Bayer. And then Bayer in the 1980s, after learning that HIV had contaminated its factor eight product, a product used, it's a blood distillate and it's a product needed by hemophiliacs. Um, they found out that their US supply was contaminated and giving people HIV and they sold it overseas. That's one of these little pieces of, you know, the history from these entities and their conduct in the space of public policy and public health that we need to bring together. You know, I don't think we should walk around in a constant state of despair about it or throw our hands in the air. But when we make the case about um, the underpinnings of some of the policies that we're dealing with and we want to trace the threads of when did you guys start cooking this stuff up? You know, what is the Council on Foreign Relations and who elected you God of America and our foreign policy? Oh, you're a bunch of oligarchs. Well, how many of you attend Bohemian Grove meetings with Henry Kissinger in the 70s, 80s, and 90s? How many of you are in the Bilderbergers group? What is the Venn diagram of those circles? You know, that's where, unfortunately, we start seeing that uh, things that have been marginalized and hyperbolized in um, social media, we make fun of people with tinfoil hats. It may come back to bite us that a certain number of them were quite accurate. And that's where, you know, I'm, like I say, I'm a student. I'm fascinated by people who pull those threads together. Um, I don't, I don't go down the rabbit holes too much of the ancient secret societies. Um, the, you know, the, uh, what are we talking about here? The, uh, who, who cut the stone, the Masons, um, you know, and, and other such entities that are commonly, uh, couched in this language of, you know, the secret handshake, they're really the ones behind all of it, the George Guidestones, you know, things of that nature. Um, I, I maintain a very, very relaxed hold on any of that data. Uh, and then once in a while, something fascinating happens, like someone dynamites the Georgia Guidestones. So, by the way, what did that do to your world when that happened? Nothing really. I mean, uh, it, they had video of it in real time, but they didn't have video of anybody like setting the you know, setting it up. I don't know. It, it, to me, a lot of things like that just feel like theatrics mm -hmm. and, and it's like, okay, do I, do I think I know why the theatrics might've occurred, you know? And if I don't, I don't know if I don't have enough information, I don't pay too much attention. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, because there's just, there, it's just too open, right. It, it's too open. Um, there, there are some, like, I, I don't, I don't think conspiracy theory or not conspiracy theory. I think, you know, evidence and not evidence, mm -hmm. you know, as much as possible. Um, whereas I do think that when you do have evidence, conspiracy theory becomes the most valuable research in the world to do. And, you know, I, I come at that, you know, I was a, I worked on Wall Street. I was a, ran a $32 billion you know, bond and swap trading account. And it, at that level, uh, where, when you're leveraged 120 to one, um, 
uh, you're doing a lot of investigation that really is kind of like conspiracy theory, right? Like my office chasing down rumors. Oh, well, you know, you can call it rumors or, you know, like my office was talking to, you know, uh, top quants at Goldman Sachs and then getting on the phone with Alan Greenspan trying to figure out what the heck was going on with the mortgage bond market in the late 1990s. Right. So, I mean, we knew essentially that there was going to be some sort of a big blow up in the 1990s, in the late 90, you know, 96. I was there in 98, um, 98, 99. But uh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, my perspective is when you when you get a chance to investigate, it's the most valuable stuff in the world because you find out. I mean, like, you know, from a trader's perspective, you find out something worth trading on. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've kept that my whole life because of that. Uh, I, I trade very well, so I haven't really needed a job, right? Like if, if I want every few years, I can just stop doing whatever I'm doing. I and get it. Trade. So, you know, it, it, it's it's investigative. And I think that that really, if, if we examine the whole world that way, there's probably lots of jobs in it, <laughs> especially in the investment world. But yeah. look, look at this, Litton, Litton. I see Stauffer's Frozen Foods. And I'm thinking, you know, if I bought Stauffer's uh, Frozen Foods, I would probably never buy them again. <laughs> Acquired by Northrop Grumman. Do you really want a defense contractor making your food? <laughs> well, what most people don't get is the pharma ownership. That most of the brands of the things they love, including the brands that have tried to differentiate themselves with green printing and green leaves and sustainable and even some organic you know fully organic um are owned by pharmacology and you know you want to talk about let's talk about an example in history so so i also care very much about uh, to sort of step away for a moment from paperclip um, but i care about uh the changes in our food supply and you look at who funded the changes in genetics and the um, sort of the ramming through the the not even emergency, the I can't believe it's not an emergency use authorization of glyphosate on most of the products that we eat that are conventional. And there's now very strong data. You wanna you wanna start collecting data sets. Go back to the Institute of Responsible Technology and Jeffrey Smith, and he'll rock your world with the data sets on the changes in, in human health since we changed the food supply. But the point I'm making about all of this is not to get off on a tangent. It's really to talk about the Hegelian dialectic. So pharma own the Monsanto and seed and, you know, agribusiness, the new, you know, the new vertical silo of integrated um, farm supply, seed supply, pesticides and herbicides you kind of have to go in all as one there's contracts there's patents to be a farmer now to go and get your bags of seed you have to sign patent agreements and that's all owned by pharma and just as the dam was really breaking about the amount of cancer and disorders that appear to be related to the changes in you know the application of glyphosate on our food uh pfizer sells Monsanto to Bayer. And then as soon as Bayer gets the present, they unwrap it and it explodes. Um, By the way, glyphosate is a chelator, so it will totally nuke your gut biome. 
if you know anything about human health and your immune system, you know that your gut biome is a key and critical piece of it. Um, it is also uh, seen to cause single and double strand DNA breaks, which is the beginnings of cancer uh, in, uh, an, in a number of different cases. There's, there's a, different, a variety of different types of neoplasia or human cancer uh, that glyphosate appears to be instrumental in. And there have been massive judgments uh, against them in the last, just the last, say, three years uh, in favor of the specific causality or the biomolecular causality of glyphosate related to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, a very, very difficult skin cancer. Um, so that's just some of the pieces about that. But that's a quite an interesting twist. You make a company that is full of scientists that basically try to take over the food supply and patent life. That was what they actually wanted to do was patent life. And then all of the changes that they're making in food start making people sick. And the company that owns Monsanto starts making new therapies and medicines for the conditions. So that's the Hegelian dialectic. You know, you come forward with a problem in order to solve it. This isn't news to you, is it? This isn't this isn't all unexplored territory, is it? Not uh, explored the the glyphosate history and question as much as I would have liked to. Mm -hmm. uh, had it not been for you know doing so much pandemic research, uh, I'm sure that I would have by now. And I have uh, at least one book. Uh, I, I've probably bought thirty books during the pandemic that um, that are on average five percent read, um, mm -hmm. stacked up in my library. Guilty, but yeah, um, uh, it, it is clearly an extraordinarily important topic. I know the very basic story. I should have Merrill Nass on uh, rounding the earth sometime, and maybe James Lyonsweiler, and uh, and talk about glyphosate, and maybe do a little reading between now and then. Um, but yeah, clearly, clearly the entire industry, the directions that it's gone, the whole, you know, we, we threw a gene in something and now you have to sign a piece of paper to use it. You can't use anything else. You can't use the, yeah. And once you're on the seed, you're stuck, right? You know, you're welcome, Mexico. Right. Well, Mexico is fighting back. They want to bring back their, uh, their, we'll say artisan or, or, um, their horticulture, history of traditional maize strains that were uh, threatened by the glyphosate corn. So, and that's another part of it is that they will, Monsanto was in a regular racket of any adjacent farms that were growing parallel crops to a Monsanto farm. If there was cross contamination and the next year, a Monsanto agent pops out of their little white car and takes a sample of your product like canola or soy or corn and finds their company's patented genes in your farm's products, they would file lawsuit against you. That's another piece of absolute horror show that farmers have been going through for 20 years. And a lot of people have been absolutely unaware of what's going on. And it's that's tyranny. And that's certainly un-American. The most horrifying piece of it, though, is what's happening to our health and to animals that eat the leftover GMO plants and all of that. So that, there's a whole other area. I would encourage you, if you want to put together a panel, please take a look at the work of Jeffrey Smith over at the Institute for Responsible Technology. It's uh, responsibletechnology.org.
And also, if you want to bring in a really powerful voice of someone who is a grassroots activist and is quickly rising in the ranks, um, look up Zen Honeycutt. And she runs Moms Across America. And Moms Across America is a California-based food safety and I will say, you know, food safety and activism uh, nonprofit. And Zen uh, is amazing and has been aggregating more and more and more excellent science in this space. So um, she is a nonprofit. She does sell some, you know, some products. Uh, I don't like to say that's grifting. She has to support herself and her family. So, you know, I don't, I don't mind that there's a commercial aspect to it. So, yeah, people, uh, people buy subscription, but you know, I, 97, yeah. 98% of my work is free on, on Substack, but you know, people, uh, I, I, I greatly appreciate that people, you know, buy subscriptions, uh, and do that. Well, and what these two will do is help frame um, the history and the science, and they are excellent trained speakers about the topic. They won't, you know, they're not going to pull up papers and get into a litany. They're going to be fantastically um, pithy and salient. Good to hear. I'll check it out. Good, good, good. Well, let's go back to paperclip. Uh, anywhere in the timeline, any aspect of uh, of the material, what uh, what tickled your fancy? What do you want to go back and, and see if there's more there? You know, but having grown up in Alabama, having had um, friends, you know, whose parents and grandparents were part of the NASA program. Uh, mm -hmm. I know that side of it um, a whole lot better. But obviously, when you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of top notch scientists, you know, there are a lot of places to go. So, you know, uh, the, the, the piece that I've probably been most interested in um, the past few years has been the psychologists and the, the propaganda people, right? Um, I mean, he, here's how good Hitler's propaganda people were. Somehow they made the world forget who they were. And here's what I mean by that. If you actually look them up name by name, um, you can find some of them in the internet movie database. Hmm. Now, why is that? Well, it's because they were directors of German films. Even creepier, Hitler was in a bunch of their movies. And somehow that's not recorded in the internet movie database. But it's clear that that the U.S. brought those people in and did something with them, right? Uh, I know that the DOD has, you know, began forging, you know, relationships relationships with Hollywood and was doing so, you know, uh, the whole even prior to World War II was was doing, you know, th there was a, a cozy relationship. But it, it's clear that those people came in and became more involved in Hollywood. But that's as much as I know, really, except like real superficial bits that I've read here and there. So I, I didn't know if your research had gone in that direction at all or with psychology, you know, more general academic psychology. Um, I'm, I'm aware of the amount of effort and uh, zeitgeist, sorry, uh, poured into the science of communicating and influencing the masses. Uh, I, I have, have just grazed the subject um, in part because it feels like you and I, as American kids, grew up immersed in the techniques. It's everywhere. And it's on every seven and eight minutes between segments. It's called the commercial. 
uh, and I was quite fascinated with um, subliminal embedding uh, when I first learned about it in the 80s. Uh, and I just figure that there is the science has gone up to the umpteenth level, that it's 50 years ahead of anything that anybody is aware of. And I'm talking about specific frequencies, specific colors, specific phonetic or auditory or staccato or, uh, you know, strobing effect in, the, you know, embedded in the course of something as simple as a television program a car commercial, a food commercial, certainly a movie, um, probably, probably more in commercials than any place else. Cause they really want to trigger that, you know, make that purchase, you know, get you to, to buy. Um, but as far as gathering or aggregating, uh, laboratory science about it, studying, uh, who came out of paperclip with those kinds of skills, it was the lowest priority for me, just because to me, it seemed like the most apparent. It's like, yeah, that stuff is still around. It's all over the place. And I know that they found their way to Hollywood. I know that the defense and intelligence communities are deeply invested in Hollywood and that the CIA was the new home for many of the Project 63 scientists, the ones that trickled in a little bit later. Um, you know, they, they found a home there. And I'm, you know, that's sorry. I'm, I'm sorry to say that uh, Truman was quite concerned about the CIA even becoming a thing right after the war. Within two years, he was openly critiquing his own decision. Uh, and at the same time, I think he felt a little bit trapped because they had acquired all of this talent and they needed a place uh, for both the scientists to subsist as well as the handlers. There was probably a significant amount of staffing involved in surveillance and, and ongoing management of them as assets. So. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, do you uh, follow Whitney Webb's research at all? A little bit, a little bit. There's, I there's so many people. And like I said, this was, this was one of the branch tips out from HIV as a lab origin that I was like, mm, this seems important. I need to keep going with it. And eventually before I knew it, I traced it all the way back to, you know, Davenport and the eugenicists and England, you know, it seems to the, the thread keeps going back and forth. Uh, tell me, tell me about Mr. Webb's work. Uh, no, Mrs. Webb. Um, oh, Mrs. Webb, Whitney Webb. Sorry. Yeah. Whitney. Um, I, I'm only about five percent of the way through her first book because I'm I'm um, I keep a note a notebook and and literally I'm taking notes per page so um, it's going very slow. Uh, it it feels like there's this prisoner's dilemma when when so much power is amassed. You know, post World War II, the U.S. government had more power over the planet than any government had ever conceived of having. Right? I mean, we had ninety five percent of the world's functioning navy which meant that we controlled trade, period, end of story, right? Yeah, you, you don't have to know any more, anything more than that. You don't have to know how dominant our banks were, um, but we had so much control, so much power. Um, it feels like, feels like there's this prisoner's dilemma that takes place between each organization and the one that might be sort of, you know, more secretive and nefarious, like the executive branch and the intelligence community, the intelligence community and the mafia, right? Mm -hmm. Like e each one would, would turn up its nose, but then collaborate and communicate and bring in, you know, the next one down, so to speak. And, and perhaps because of that intentionally or unintentionally, the whole world has been brought under essentially this one network that extends from the executive branch through 
all of the world's mafias. And I think this is why, you know, when, when you start looking into details, um, when you start looking at the world's drug trade with the world's, um, you know, sex trafficking, human trafficking trades, um, it, it's all connected through the DOD and then back up to the executive branch. And, and it's been that way. And it's been, it's been growing into that for decades. And I, I think that's, you know, it's essentially why is, you know, each organization uh, or, or each unit um, has felt the advantage or, or at least the disincentive to go to war with, you know, those who would be the other. So whereas the president allows the intelligence agencies to come in and the intelligence agencies included members of essentially all the oligarch families. You know, uh, right after World War II, the, the early CIA, you know, was, a lot of it was sons and daughters of American billionaires. And then, uh, and, and, and Yale then, graduates and, and Yale graduates. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If, if you weren't Harriman, if you married into the Harriman family, then mm -hmm. yeah, then you were that. Right. So, um, yeah, uh, it, it, it's a, it's a big, huge mess, but, um, this is, I, I try to argue, you know, so during the pandemic, a lot of people have said, oh, you know, clearly government's not working, blah, blah, blah. And, and I see some of these people and I'm just like, you have to drop your model of the world. You have to drop this idea that the large state can exist without crushing you eventually, without crushing everyone that you love eventually, unless you're on the inside with a lot of levers of control. And that's not a lot of people. Well, no. And a lot of people that are sort of on that fence, uh, we could say Robert Malone. Um, we could say Annie Jacobson. You know, Annie grew up, Annie, the author of Operation Paperclip, who I, what I very, very, very much enjoy and recommend, excellent research, grew up in a defense and intelligence family. There's a lot of them. It, it doesn't make everyone subject to scrutiny. It, it doesn't call into question um, their, their conduct and ethics. Um, but it gives us pause for thought with regards to the risks of nepotism, um, secret societies, uh, secret handshakes between certain circles of people to affect certain things. Uh, when I saw unrelated, but, you know, uh, related in the topic of sort of revelations about these groups of folks, when I saw The Family on Netflix, um, I was very, very grateful for that work because it was pretty sober. You know, it wasn't a nail biter, but it was quite important about understanding one of these large veins of power that doesn't want to call attention to itself. It doesn't want to have a brand or a logo. It certainly doesn't want to have a membership list or put out minutes. But there's this ongoing, inclusive, discretionary pool of people who have taken it upon themselves to sort of nearshore or offshore perhaps the business of the nation. And if some of that involves getting positioned for wars so that they can play both sides of it or getting positioned for epidemics so that they can have the right amounts of stock purchased or sold in a particular company or industry, um, then those are the crimes that we've got to root out. And when it happens, you know, like it appears is happening right now. There's just, there's too much stuff that you can't stuff the genie back in the bottle. If we're talking, you know, stepping forward to the current dilemma in public health, you, there's so much evidence. Uh, someone in Europe in the early, early spring of 2020 shared a massive cache 
Uh, and it just represented that they had done hours and hours of aggregating articles about coronavirus. And I have shared that. I included it in, in my system, in my bibliographies, and have shared it with people. And you can go into it and read the story of what's been happening for the last 30 years with the, with the stuff and figure it out for yourself if you apply yourself. So I, I think if we, if we talk about um, the value of this kind of scrutiny, when you say chasing after conspiracy theories or using them as um, a counterpoint um, to just sort of check yourself and say, is there something inside of that that could be true? Is there evidence um, that's, that's has continued to be surprising to me and to a lot of folks as we go back and we question things and we ask for verification and we don't just accept um, the pat answer. And that's, you know, I think that's the duty of, of most citizens. I don't think we can all be chasing down the mystery all the time. Um, but in the current state and what we're faced with and the particularly the power grab that's accompanying all of this, I think it's quite important that um, we, you know, more of us sit up, you know, turn off the television, start doing some reading, um, associate with one another, start reading substacks, uh, looking at bibliographies. That's not just that boring list at the end of someone's paper. That's the, you know, that's the, the, the bits and pieces. That's the, the you know, the, the little cognitive, you know, grains of sand that become the glass that become the lens. And, you know, I think that's where I wish more people would be nerds. Um, and I, I, I just want to commend, I, I really, really respect your approach to the work. I know I've gushed a little bit about your Substack, but um, thank you for instead of becoming lost in media or, you know, your own edification, um, you have you have succumbed to, uh, it would seem, the drive of your own compassion in this work. So thank you. I, I, I appreciate that compliment. Uh, you know, really, it's uh, curiosity just becomes a runaway machine. Um, I, I, I felt lucky that at the beginning of the pandemic, I didn't need to have a job. Right. And, and it's not because I'm tremendously wealthy, but I was just, just in that position, just barely. Mm -hmm. Um, so here, it, but, and, and fortunately now the Substack pays the bills. Um, that's, that's been, uh, I'm so appreciative of that fact, um, that, that people find the work valuable enough. Um, so you know, keep doing it, keep documenting and, and you know, writing stuff. I, I'll say it, 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 it's a never ending list. I have three, I have over 300 unfinished articles. <laughs> and and it, it's because I keep finding people like you, you know, like uh, <laughs> your conversation uh, with Mark was just awesome, by the way. I, yeah, and that's how I found you. Um, but, you know, I, like I, I'm, I'm just going to share this um some of these some of these i wouldn't want to open up what my research looks like but um let's, let's let me find one here yeah just uh yeah, this is after i exported uh the first 60 articles but this is 228 pages of, of articles and research everything looks like this uh oh, no that wait just... that's a single topic um well yeah well the, the chloroquine wars i think would be 600 pages total if i had it in one document um See, even like where I have, I have, um, I have over a thousand pages to have different places, unsorted research. And this is just where, you know, I'm just like dropping links, you know, and dropping stories from the internet, dropping, you know, whatever. And then later I go back and I put it in the, the actual correct document because the number of documents that I have is just, 
you know, it's sprawling and this is only a fraction of them. Like most of the links here are actually like, um, uh, you know, when you go to them, you know, they're going to link to other documents, um, you know, and the links to documents they're in and so on and so on. Um, so yeah, this is, this is, you know, where I've got, and, and that, yeah, I, I think it's 20,000 pages in the last three years. Um, just, well, I think, I think you could consider, um, taking key items that you've already written and, um, Greek pottery, uh, and, um, I even keep memes and funny stuff too. Putting together, you've got Henry Kissinger picking his nose. I put that up on Twitter. <laughs> I put that up on Twitter. No, I didn't take the picture, but um, I may have uh, stolen. I, I think you should consider that. maybe a book, maybe a book, maybe you got enough. Um, you know, just think about think about that, and and obviously the coherent pieces that fit together into a larger arc. But uh, why not? You know, some people will not get to this. This is where they could get so much more out of it because they can hear us and they can see live review and discovery and research occurring in real time, but they miss it because it's just not on their radar, but they'll see that book. You know, they might yeah. pick up that book. Um, well, so, that, you know, actually what the Substack was originally in 2020, uh, I tried mm -hmm. to write it too quickly. I tried mm -hmm. to, in two and a half months, I tried to write a book called The Chloroquine Wars. Okay. But the story was still unfolding and it was unfolding so rapidly. Um, sure. And I, I'm a fast writer because I've written, um, uh, I, I actually don't know how many books I've written. It depends on how you count them because I, I've helped with various textbooks, uh, written a chapter in an economics textbook. I wrote some in a pre-calculus book that I was never given credit for or paid for, but that's another story. But I, you know, I, I've written, um, you know, number theory and algebra books and, um, and I've written, um, I wrote a, the last chapter in the Tyson Freed book, but I've practiced writing for many, I've written 20,000 pages of curriculum. So uh, that's you know, fantastic. I've, done, I've, I've gone through the, like, how do you do this? I'm very slow at this. What do I do next? Yeah. To, I just, you know, sit down and type and type and type. Um, the, the problem is, well, okay. So uh, with the chloroquine wars, I didn't get it done before the election and it actually kind of depressed me. And then the post-election, like what we saw kind of depressed me. And so I actually just threw up my hands for a couple of months until my friend who's a vaccine uh, manufacturer called me and kind of roped me back into thinking. And then, you know, the moment I got back on Facebook uh, running a group that I ran on early treatment medicine, I got banned. I had four 30 day bans and it was almost like I would get back on for three days. Boom, I get banned again. So that's why I opened my Substack and I just started dropping what would have been chapters in that book. But I've started three different books and I don't know. You know, I, I, uh, th there's so much to do. My top priority keeps changing because the world is changing so fast, right? This battle that's going on, this information war, it is so fast because it's, you know, I, I think it's been in the, in the works for decades, right? Pieces of it have been in the work for decades. Oh, and I've watched patches of, of information disappear or just get locked. It's there. It's in the National Library of Medicine, but there's a 50-year lockout on those folders. And they just dangle it like cheese in front of you. And they're like, yeah, yeah, come back in 2055 and you can read this because everybody that has a stake in it will be dead. Um, and you can you can learn for yourself, you know, the horrifying things that we were doing in the lab with taxpayer money. You know, I, I am, I'm being very cynical about that stuff, but I, I've seen a great deal of disappearing ink um, I've spoken with um, Mark about it. 
Um, I've spoken uh, with several of the investigators about it, including Dr. Johanna Deinert and Dr. Kevin McCarron and, um, and just, you know, said, look, one thing that's beneficial is the digital technology is that there are some nerds out there that have backups of stuff forever. They've got, you know, they, you can't take it back. You can't pull it all back. Yeah. So that's good. There's, Mark and I you know, are a very light mind uh, with mm -hmm. wikis and open source intelligence, mm -hmm. right? That, mm -hmm. That's actually, that's going to be a piece of what breaks the regimes, I think. And, and I do believe that we've been living under sort of a, a you know, people call it globalist, you know, I'll just use that phrase, right? I think it's, I do think it's sure. a handful of people, if not possibly even one person who's sort of king of the world. Like that person may exist. And it's funny, um, I, 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 people fight me on this all the time. Like, no, that's impossible. Uh, as, you know, pe people have interests, they're aligned interests. Yeah, a lot of things happen because of aligned interests. Um, but it's funny that um, within the same pool of people has been this weird, completely unsubstantiated science fiction fantasy theory that all of the pandemic is being run by an artificial intelligence, which is hysterical because that would be the same thing, which is one mind controlling everything. Well, I read, you know, a wrinkle in time by Madeline Longle and, you know, and any number of collectivist, uh, dystopian <laughs> nightmares, um, Kate, you know, caged in, in different, uh, settings. Um, and, uh, I, I would be, I would be quite, I, I think that there's going to be some quite interesting things about AIs that will sneak out. We'll learn about, wow, you know, an AI suddenly, um, started, uh, to practice, uh, telepathy or it started, uh, to, it, it be, it, it spontaneously developed the ability to teleport something. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm being fantastic, but I think, like when we found out about the two AIs that they let start talking to each other and they had to shut them down because they immediately created their own language and the humans were shut out. I, I, I don't, I don't hold this deep trembling fear about the AI and the Terminator vision. And you know, a lot of that, I think there are risks. Um, but you know, anybody that's helped manage or maintain technology can tell you things break down. You know, everything breaks down. Robots, you know, <laughs> what are the robots going to stop and say, can you update my BIOS so I can keep attacking you? Okay, thanks. You know, I I, I think that um, we're, we've let the dish run away with the spoon, as that old children's song goes, um, with these kinds of visions. And I would be quite concerned that they're very effective tools by people who would use media and uh, dystopian visions and imagery and propaganda to affect people, most importantly, to distract them, to to get them concerned about something that isn't important or isn't real. I think it's a red herring type concern. Um, but I'm also open to all of the amazing things that we're going to learn about AI um, beyond that it can make some really weird art. Have you tried the AI art? No, I have. I have a friend who does, though. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I'm going to share where I am on this, though, because since we went in this direction, I, I, I think this is critically important. This is part of the reason why, um, to the extent that I can, I want to find more about about the psychology programs that we imported from the Nazi regime. And right. that's why I asked you about MK Ultra because MK Ultra wasn't just all about LSD and mescaline. MK Ultra was about the mind. The, the underlying premise was about influence and control. The television is a tool. Movies are a tool. The spoken word is a tool. 
and certainly they were, you know, they got fascinated with LSD. Yeah. And, and that the somehow they could create, you know, a, a truth serum or something, but I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't catch that. Yeah. And, and the Prussian education model. Yes. Right. That was Frederick the Great. You know, how do I turn people into clockwork soldiers? You know, uh, complete, you know, uh, lobotomized, except to the authority of, of what I need them to do on the battlefield. March in this particular way. That's what the goose, goose step is important for. It had nothing to do you know, specifically with the Nazi party um, and people, you know, people might not know that from history. It was about having um, something that was so well timed that you could basically hold up signs for what the troops were supposed to do on the battlefield. And your troops would do a better job of going to precise locations, getting precise distance, and then loading and firing. And therefore, once that was done, uh, you could have your troops spending more time in between battles practicing firing. So they got off more shots than opposing armies by a substantial degree, like 60, 70 percent. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was all about turning people into clockwork. And, yeah, like uh, the LSD, I don't think is as important specifically as the fact that they were just they were just going through different experiments. Right. Um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, two of my old, uh, two of my older brothers who you know went through the same um, you know remote viewing at that's the easiest label to put to it. I'll just call it the remote viewing, you know, um, research programs. Um, are you, by the way, are you comfortable mentioning where you had these experiences? I, I grew up uh, north of Birmingham, Alabama. Gotcha. But I'm talking about, they didn't come to your house. Where did you guys go? No, they came to my house. Ah, uh, so was this a lot of cards with stars and moons and squares? And yeah, that was one of the experiments. That's actually the one that I saw falsified. Like uh, right in front of my uh, eyes. Okay. Okay. Well, actually, that was kind of a red herring to the higher it, level activities. So. I take it back. That's not the one that I saw falsified. The one oh. that I saw, it was the same day, but the one that I saw falsified was, uh, so my brother, Chad, he was, he was the one um, who was being sort of built up as this like psychic genius. Mm -hmm. He was being told that he was a master psychic, that he would grow up to be, you know, a psychic leader on earth, a super soldier. Mm-hmm. And like, literally, this is being fed to an eight-year-old child, nine-year-old, 10-year-old child, right? Uh, he turned into a monster, by the way, um, you know, died with a needle in his arm after having been committed to you know, a mental hospital. But before that, he... I'm yeah, sorry, and, Matthew. Uh, thank you. Um, you know, before that, he he sold the the same LSD that was used in MKUltra that was made in uh, yeah, MIT dorms and laboratories. Um, Bathtub so acid. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, uh, uh, the, the one that they, they swapped my results with his, I was better at reading people's faces. Like mm -hmm. uh, they would have, you know, uh, same person making two different faces, you know, which one represents anguish, which one looks more confused, you know, who's happy, who's frightened. Okay. Interesting. And I like, you know, I, I got 48 out of 50. So I was, I was real good at that. Um, he, he, I don't know. I don't know what he got like 40 or something like that, but he, he had performed, um, he had performed better on the one with the, the cards you were just mentioning. I, I never can remember that deck, even though I've literally looked it up like 50 times in my adult life. I have like a mental block with what that deck is called. Oh no, but we know exactly what we're talking about. It's the same, it's the same test that's been used since the fifties, you know, at least. Yeah, exact, and, exact same sorts of drills, but I, you know, I, I would. Sorry, please go ahead. I, I was I was just gonna uh, finish that. Um, you know, I didn't do well on that one, but he did. Um, you know, what was like statistically abnormal, 
like to get eight out of 25 when you're supposed to get five. That's considered abnormal. And they go, woo, instead of, hey, look, somebody rolled the die and, and got, you know, got a 20 on a D20. They go, woo, psychic. I mean, that, that's literally what these tests were like. But even worse, even worse, in order to stack up one person with consistently high results, they swap stuff. And then, uh, well, that's that's human corruption, and yeah. that's not surprising in any space. It doesn't matter if it's you know the team next to you at the office. You know, well, well, let's fudge it, our numbers. You know, it's part of my opinion though that those tests were not about actual paranormal uh, exper experiences. Mm -hmm. I that they were about um, that they were about the responses of the children to being told they were being trained to do these things. Well, yeah, suggestion and psychic driving, you know, at a very low grade, but trying to potentially create some spontaneous capability or response in the subject by suggestion repeatedly. Did you go? So it sounds like you soured on the subject, which at that age, I certainly, and with the kind of mind that you've got, I can certainly understand why you had that response. Did you go back and examine anything that occurred at the Stanford Research Institute in the late seventies to mid eighties. Uh, Stand uh, SRI Stanford Research. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, that was um, and and yeah, I, I followed this very closely. Um, oh, okay. That that was uh, part of what Jim Channing and Albert Stubblebine brought into mm -hmm. the U.S. military, and you mm -hmm. know that book and movie, The Men Who Stare at Goats. Yes. Um, yeah, that's a great example of psychology misdirection because. Um, I, you know, you know, what Jim Channing was studying was guru cult leaders. He was studying psychopaths controlling people. I mm -hmm. think that's what they saw in my brother, Chad. I think they saw a psychopath who could control people well, and that was actually their mission. And now, Chad was now was Chad, the charismatic one that was right, the rock star. Right. Yep. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, we like we've had friends like, you know, independently, like, you know, I'll run into people, you know, from childhood and they're like, you know, your brother, I always thought he could be like the next Charles Manson. I'm like, yeah, that's right. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, that that's what and, and I believe that that was being intentionally uh, and deliberately prodded along. Um, but and, and so I, I think that, that all of the parapsychology stuff, I think, is a front for that. Right. Even like the remote viewing stuff specifically, um, there was never any evidence of whether or not we drew something that was right or wrong. It was just somebody's word. It was so unscientific as to just be bonzo. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm and, sure because of what you're saying that you haven't read what Ingo identified. He identified a mechanism in an atomic facility and described the mechanism which was encased in concrete. It was a specialized, I think it was a sensor that was encased down in the floor of this building. So I knew I, exactly what it was. This is an anecdote. This is one of many, right. many, it, many it, cases. It, it, and Ingo was not the norm. Ingo was an outlier. It, so. It's also a just so story, right? Like no, nobody's ever, um, and, and I've invited people on, like I, mm -hmm. I invited Jerry Geller and Yuri Geller was tested by the Stanford Research Institute. And it's interesting mm -hmm. that they specifically picked a nightclub magician. And they picked that not only did they pick a nightclub magician, they picked one who uh, had been in a lawsuit in Israel because after his his shows, like when you do things like bin spoons, he would just be like, no, it's actual magic. 
No, seriously, I'm, I'm, you know, this, these aren't illusions. This is actual magic. That's what he would tell people. And somebody actually like, like freaked out and sued him for it because it just pissed them off so much that he was just, you know, he was like, no, I'm actually magic. I'm magic. And so the Stanford Research Institute brought him in. And I think that they weren't studying whether or not he can actually do remote viewing. I think all of that, like all that was just like made up, you know, I mean, like all, all you get are videos that could just so easily be a celebrity famous. psychic. Yeah. Well, psychic. I think it was the making of, of a personality and, you know, it, it's oh, sure. It's, sure. It's, it was a weird but, mix. Yeah. You know, um, Jim Channing and Albert Stubblebine brought Yuri Yeller in specifically to the first Earth Battalion. And I think that that was, that was to sort of demonstrate uh, that it, that it was the making of a personality. That's what Jim Channing was studying in California that he had explained to military intelligence was, you know, look, um, you know, warfare is about, you know, if you can control people first, you win a war without fighting it. Well, where do we see people best controlled? We see them best controlled when you have one psychopathic guru in a cult. And so the, the paradigm became, how do we, uh, how do we scale that? How do we scale that to the masses? That's my, that's my very firm belief, having spent uh, a lot of years and, and, and understand like, you know, um, you know, a major general Stubblebine, I, you know, I literally got out of bed and hid behind you know, the living room door to listen to conversations uh, with him and my parents. That's fascinating. Yeah, or, or, and you need to write, have you written about all of that? Um, I have hundreds of pages. I, I've written little bits about it, right? Like, um, you know, I, I would tell my, I would tell friends about it and it, it was clear that I, I, you know, there was, there was no context, you know, for the conversation to go anywhere. Right. It's like, it's really, anytime I talked about it, I was risking my credibility. So, uh, yes, yes, yeah, yes, yes. Shut up about it's, it, but it's tough. It's I, well, I mean, did you watch the defense? Uh, did you watch the department of defense come out of the closet about UFOs in May? Well, I mean, here's the thing. I believe that that is a psyop. Okay. Uh, I, I believe that's the same group of people. In fact, I, I think that uh, that that's a psyop that's been built up for decades, and that um, and you know that, that ultimately it's the same group of people in the DoD who are developing any form of fear-based control that they can. Yeah, and and part of that is the, the same program. You know, we were subjected to lots of stories about aliens and alien technology, and mm -hmm. we were told so many things, and yet just like with all the paranormal phenomena, nothing was ever demonstrated, right? Nothing. And we all. can go back to CIA archives from the 1950s where they discussed deliberately engaging Hollywood to hype up the scary alien, you know, the creature from beyond uh, and to keep a, a level of hyperbole in all of the media, you know, cartoons, TV shows and movies about uh, anything from outer space. Yeah. And a um, number of people in the DOD have been caught faking, um, you know, aliens and, and spacecraft and that, that it, it doesn't make it into the conversations most of the time of people who do like these alien documentaries and whatnot. Oh, here's an interesting piece. Albert Stubblebine's second wife is part of the medical freedom movement. Have you heard of her? No. Uh, her name's Rima Labo. And you, you may have seen her before. Did you ever watch uh, Jesse Ventura doing interviews circa 2009 uh, are you talking about conspiracy theory? His show? Yeah. Uh, I saw, I saw a few of those. Yes. And there was a woman who flew in from Panama and, you know, like wouldn't get off the, 
You know, oh, the one we, that met him on the tarmac. Right. Met yeah. him on the tarmac. I remember said, that conversation. And she told him that a, a, a head of state told her that the great calling was about to begin. Now, she's further described as head of state. Uh, apparently, this, this, according to her, this conversation happened in 2003, and this head of state was wearing a tiara. Now, let's remember, this is like a physician in Arizona, right? There weren't many head, female heads of state in the entire world. Not many of them wear a tiara, but she has also said that it wasn't the Queen of England. So it's it, it, like the whole story just smells of nonsense. But here's the thing. She was married to Albert Stubblebine, who was talking about vaccine genocide in 1982, <laughs> right? So it, now, but go go back to the 1980s. What is Rima Lebo doing? She's making UFO document. Uh, she, she's appearing in uh, UFO conspiracy theory documentaries. I think that the two of them met doing DOD propaganda with UFOs. I think that's how they met to begin with. And then he had an affair with her and divorced his first wife. Well, I've never been pulled into, if we call it the UFO community, I don't know how, how much community there is. There are people that are very, very serious about the topic. And there's a whole spectrum of people that go from, I think, quite a tertiary or, or a high level view. They, they see these symbols and shapes in the media that we've all that have been planted there for 60 years. And they say, ah, that's the story. And then there are varying degrees of people who dig down, they're influenced uh, by non-quantitative inputs. They're fully qualitative researchers. They are, they are uh, affected by a shadow on the wall. Um, and that for me is interesting, you know, to a degree about human, human beings. There's worse things people could do. Uh, and then you have your people that go and look up the Defense Department patents. They learn about T. Thompson Brown. They learn about programs that ran in parallel uh, to the naval defense, uh, to you know all of all of the intelligence groups and the and the high end laboratories across the defense agencies that were apparently had some kind of a toe in the UFO pool, and whether it was electromagnetic gravitics, which is a thing, whether it was zero point energy. Uh, whether it was uh, alleged recovery and reverse engineering of technology from downed craft, you know, all of that leads into a whole nother universe of speculation and hearsay. And um, so, you know, it's not as a, as an investigator, um, it certainly is a fun place to take a vacation, you know, to go in and, and, and listen to these ideas and these theories and more and more yeah. I look at the behavior of people. I'm just watching their, I'm watching their learning and, and their, their, um, there's their scrutiny and their critical thinking skills and, and, you know, gauging some insight on how they take it. And, and if there are things like experimental aircraft, right. And, and, uh, you know, I, I've always, I've, I've always sort of like, you know, put on my, you know, creative thinking cap and said, you know, what, what if there were some technology that would be sort of flying saucer ish, um, you know, and, uh, thought about like gyroscopes and, you know, not that I've gone deep into the level of, you know, where I could understand, the engineering and it, its limitations, but things like the the Segway, for instance, right? The the amazing ability for that machine to rebalance itself, right, means that if you can get any sort of propulsion at all, and you can get something to sort of constantly re rebalance itself, you could possibly be you know testing out crafts, uh, and and maybe they maybe it never went anywhere, where, right? Like maybe maybe the it was like okay, we can do this thing, but then it, it's not really practical or functional thereafter, which is 
you know, it's its, its own question. Um, but, you know, it, it could very well be that there are some really awesome and in interesting stories behind some things that wound up being papered over with uh, the whole UFO thing. But uh, I'm going to, uh, you know, Mark asked the question, um, do you think there's a connection between uh, glyphosate and the paperclip program? And again, I haven't gone deep on um, glyphosate myself. Somebody mentioned Stephanie Sinoff, and and uh, I know Stephanie, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna try to put together a roundtable one day, and 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 let's start talking glyphosate because I know I'm undereducated in that it's extraordinarily important. I do know enough to know how important it is, but um, you know, get some real experts in for a roundtable sometime. But it, uh, ha have you come across any links? Uh, they they would at this point be. Um, uh Hypo, you know, hypotheses that I would have to be uh, checking the connections. It comes down to, again, the big pharma companies, which ended up buying or instituting things like Monsanto, who then collected and, and became essentially the, the tip of the spear for modifying plant genetics, as well as, I mean, the purpose of modifying with them was so that they could be coupled with this horrible stuff called glyphosate. Um, so that you know what is in your conventional food as you bite into a burger. Sorry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this to you. Um, in the 1960s, the company that owned the patent for glyphosate prior to Monsanto had a tank of it on their, on their facility. And Monsanto folks were on site and noticed it leaking out of the tank. And they came to find out that the material, the liquid was used to strip minerals out of pipes. So, you know, when you've got heavy water buildup and you have, uh, literally, you have buildup of calcification, uh, they would use glyphosate to melt the calcifications out of the pipes so they didn't have to replace the pipes. Mm -hmm. So that's what's sprayed on your food, Matthew. Glyphosate. It, it, it is, it is extremely toxic to your gut so if you have trouble if you're taking handfuls of vitamin d like most people if you're guzzling down probiotics and prebiotics because you can't keep a regular healthy hard poop sorry i said it um i talked to i talked to a lot of doctors and nurses so you'll forgive me um you might just think about what am i putting in my body and what is it doing to my gut flora that's that's the tip of the you know the tip of the shoot if you want to slide down into GMOs and glyphosate. There are some amazing I, I, scientists. And, you know, I, I'm just going to you know jump in and say this. You know, poop gets yeah. a bad name sometimes, right? <laughs> what the Germans could teach us about poop. Yeah, you know, it's, it's an important topic, and you know, not every you know, not not every poop subject is is unworthy of talking about, and and sometimes uh, sometimes poop humor is the right humor. Well, let's think about bringing this plane in for a landing. So I'd like to ask you um, to opine, to reflect. Um, and in particular, again, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just tickled about the serendipity of, of your childhood and your experiences in Huntsville. Um, these people didn't come down the sidewalk uh, goose-stepping and chasing after you and checking your, your bone check structure and your cheek structure and your eye color, did they? It was a pretty nice, normal little part of Alabama. It's a you know nice community. Well, I, I'll mention this: my grandfather was military intelligence. Okay, and so I, I don't know if that's how the connection happened, but I think that it is. Okay, so tell me, what do you think the net effect of grandchildren of these? Because it's not the scientists anymore at all; they're all gone. 
the grandchildren of these people at best coming into roles at a university uh, in an elected office uh, as a scientific leader, as an academic professor. Uh, what is your uh, what are your feelings about that? Is there a sense of concern or foreboding? Um, do we need to, to find these people and talk to them and, and give them a litmus test? What is that litmus test? Well, and this, this is part of the reason why I try to you know, help people or, you know, encourage people to at least hear my story. And and, you know, like, I mean, here's the thing. You know, what's any one person going to do? My brothers and I, we were three very different people. The directions that we went were all so different that um, you can't just say, you know, uh, you know, people are going to do X or people are going to do Y, right? Um, I mean, my oldest brother, Andrew, was a, um, he was a uh, world-renowned uh, club fire and knife juggler. You know, he and his, he and his uh, partner unofficially set the world record for, you know, club passing. Uh, they, they never cared to make it official, right? But they would, you know, go, go uh, raise crowds at Grateful Dead shows. And then, and then Andrew could sell a lot of LSD, right? Uh, <laughs> well, synergy, you know, <laughs> market positioning. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I competed in math competitions, won most of the national math competitions, went to wash you on a uh, full scholarship and then just dropped out of school, went to wall street. Right. Um, you know, only did the hedge fund thing for two years before I quit because why work for them when I could sit at home and work. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it, it, and, and then, you know, and then Chad, then there was Chad, the, the cult leader who was so good at it that I think it caused him to never have to really do much of anything else. I mean, he, he could, he could, he was one of those people where if he wanted to, he could walk down the street and find a new girlfriend to take care of him every week. You know, he was that kind of, of person. And I, Charlie I Manson, he did that as long as he could. Right. Because eventually like, um, if you're too good at something, if you're too fast at going through the population, eventually there are enough women who are vexed by you because you've ruined their lives, or at least they perceive that, right? They can't get out of the mental trap. And, and half the men in that circle recognize that you're a demon and just want to murder you, <laughs> right? So, I mean, he, he would literally have to just like move on and move on and move on. As they say, what goes around comes around. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, you know, eventually, you know, all the drugs just drove him off a cliff. Um, but, you know, when, when I imagine what Chad could have become, we, we wound up having, the, you know, all, the experiment stopped because we had family turmoil because my aunt and uncle um, burned down the family business and two firefighters died and we adopted their kids and it was all chaos, right? So, you know, okay, that that's was, a movie that, that I want to watch. So you let me know grew. when that's released. Uh, it, it, it's more boring than it sounds. I mean, it, okay. really, it really just was two assholes who were snorting up, you know, snorting the business up their nose. Oh, God. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just one of those stories. But, you know, I mean, we adopted their kids because where else are they going to go? Um, and then, you know, suddenly it's all just too much chaos. And, uh, and you know, um, from there, uh, yeah, I, I guess it was just sort of like free form. Like, where does everybody go from here? Um, and you know, both my brothers just started selling drugs uh, almost immediately and, and somewhat through some of the connections that had been made through, you know, this, this circle, um, <laughs> that, that had been sort of forming, uh, you know, they got their first drugs from guys in the military. Right. So, um, yeah, I was, I was really bowled over to see the scope. Uh, I think more recently there's just, I've just found so many documentaries about MK ultra 
and there's such good data and you can go, you know, you can go to national archives now and get more information than you used to be. Um, but at the uh, sort, we, we talk about Ouroboros, the serpent eating its own tail, that the CIA created that culture. It seems like, you know, they, they, they seeded it into universities. They, the kids went crazy for it, of course, because it was rebellious and wild and different and expanded their minds. And before you know it, you know, we've got, um, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and everything's getting, everybody's getting burned out on the Haight-Ashbury. But uh, it's, that's, that's quite that in and of itself. I think that's one of those pieces of the 20th century. That's a fascinating little twist. And somebody mentions photos of Hitler. It's interesting that um, with all the technology we have, that we don't have people, you know, running these through, you know, facial recognition systems. And the answer is we do. But running who? Running who through facial rec? Like photos of Hitler. Uh. So yeah, I had, a, I had a, a former student who actually created their own photo recognition system. And it's now used by law enforcement. But one of the things that they did was, was check out the picture that's supposed to be a uh, 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 George H.W. Bush outside the book depository. Do you know the photo I'm talking about? I don't. I don't. And I know that there are people whose lives have been uh, prostrate to, you know, the the murder of, of Kennedy um, and all of the bits and pieces. So I'm, I'm constantly fascinated at new data that emerges about it. Um, but again, we, we talk about qualitative versus quantitative. Um, did you watch 112263, the Stephen King story? No, I haven't heard of this. Okay, dude. I'm so glad to be giving you that. You So you've got a couple of things you're going to really enjoy. One is hunting Hitler. You're going to, they're not going to be able to peel you off of that. The next is 11-22-63. And it's a Stephen King story about 11-22-63. And I'm not going to tell you a thing about it, but you've got to watch it. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful history piece. Um, it's a fantastic, the, the period art is amazing, meaning you are just transported there. Um, but beyond that, I don't want to say a word about it. It's a, it's a really, really fascinating, um, little, little flirtation with history. And did you watch Operation Blue Book or Project Blue Book on Amazon? Uh, you know, I think I did remind me what the, the primary topics were. I'll first ask you, do you know who Robert Zemeckis is? Yes. Back to the Future, who did all the fantastic 1950s period. I mean, that was his eye. He, We were seeing the world through his eyes. Um, yeah, Project Blue Book is told through the, the narrative and the diaries of Dr. Alan Hynek. And Dr. Hynek was the senior, you know, the uh, paired civilian scientific lead in the Blue Book team. Okay, and I'll it is maybe incredible, maybe incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's I'll it's highly these up. It's highly editorialized because nobody was there to listen and jot down those conversations. So you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt. But it's extremely well done. And by the way, there's a brief little intersection in the Blue Book series uh, with Werner von Braun and uh, more of that exotic technology, and um, certainly paperclip. So that's a fun little Easter egg you can go find. Well, did I pass your litmus test? Am I okay? I mean, we we burned two hours. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Um, you know, thanks for uh, for stopping by. And you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, if uh, 
anytime you're, you're doing deep dive research and you want to have a conversation about uh, an important topic, uh, especially the ones that, that don't get discussed enough, you know, that, that's kind of what I intend rounding the earth to be is, is things that are under discussed, but, but that it might change the way people view the world might change the world. If people did understand them, right. Mm -hmm. It might make the world round again. Um, I'll ask this and you can consider it, or if you know the answer, you can share it. Um, are you interested in a tailored discussion about the lab origin of HIV? I know you've seen me doing this in a couple of different channels with different groups. Um, yeah. Is that something that your audience would be interested in and that we could, you know, maybe sort of segue it from the 1950s that we were just discussing heavily to some, you know, really what, what was the danger? What became of some of that dangerous science? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've learned just enough during the pandemic uh, to have a big question mark as to, you know, the cause versus correlation of HIV and AIDS. Okay. And uh, I, I did share the first two, I think you were doing a three-part series. I shared the first two on our Locals channel. Which, by the way, um, if you're watching here, this is part of what the locals channel is for is, is, you know, things that I don't necessarily write an article about, but I see a good article or a good video about, you know, that's where I drop it. And also sometimes I just ask other people like, you know, uh, just like just like during here, um, you know, uh, somebody mentioned uh, Stephanie uh, Senef. And I know Stephanie, I don't know why um, her name didn't come up first in my head to talk about uh, glyphosate, but uh, maybe I'll have like Stephanie and Meryl Nass on sometime um, early next year. I definitely want to. Uh, th th that's a, a conversation that definitely needs to happen. But thanks so much. Yeah, if, if, if you want to uh, do the HIV thing, especially, uh, it sounds like you've been refining a story, um, as in you've been putting the pieces together into uh, more and more coherent, big picture, mm -hmm. um, then uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, literally just when you want to do it, uh, reach out and let me know. Okay, we will do. I'm working on the 300 level presentation right now. So um, we'll think about, you know, do we want to kind of do a, a lighter version of the 100 level for folks that might not have seen the materials? Uh, because that's really kind of the place to start is what is the story from beginning to end? Uh, what's the structure of the hypothesis? Where does the evidence come from? And um, that's, that's as important as anything is, is having whether they can accept it or not. Because I know that a significant number of people have come into that conversation with me and the door slammed shut. And because of any number of reasons, they could not let this information into their worldview. Um, I do not, you know, I do not do this. I do it as a labor of love and because I lived through it. Um, but I do it now today. Uh, you know, we can't bring these people back. We can't get justice for them. Um, I don't know all of their names. You know, there was a huge amount of loss around the world because of this, but we may very well be able to see a direct lineage in the sort of the impetus, the origin story of some of these activities in the NIH and the DOD and how they progressed and manifested to the situation that we're in. That seems to be the value that the scientists I've talked with are really interested in. They care about the HIV story. They're kind of overwhelmed by it. Um, but then they immediately begin recognizing um, institutions, agencies, individuals that play a role in today's public health space. So um, we'll 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 kick that around yeah. and think about it in January yeah. or February sometime. You, I could bring in somebody also to to you know uh, participate. Like you know, sometimes I do roundtables, and mm -hmm. for instance, my friend uh, Jessica Rose was an HIV researcher. So and, and I, I know 
that uh, during the pandemic, she's changed her mind on a number of things. I don't know what her mind is okay. on HIV. I do know that she is a big Carrie Mullis fan. <laughs> and so, you know, that, that may um, you know, be, be some indication, but she seems open-minded to reevaluating a lot of things, right? So, um, but that- You that's mean, a, you mean as a point I, counterpoint is what I, you're I, suggesting? Well, no, no, I, I mean- it, it, it could be point counterpoint. I have no idea what she's going to say. I have no idea what you're going to say. I just mean that uh, sometimes it's good to have, you know, uh, multiple good minds in the same room. Mm, agreed. Agreed. Yes. And my, my mind has room for Kerry Mullis and his criticisms of his own technology. My mind has room for Peter Duesberg. My mind has room for also all of the other whistleblowers and all of the data. So that's the cool part is that it's never a confrontation. This never becomes a, a pitched, a fever pitched fight, you know, and the veins are popping out of my head as if I get into conflict with someone who doesn't get it. I don't need them to get it. What I hope is that I can provide them with a clear trail to where the water is. And if they're ever thirsty, they know where to get it. So I'd be happy to talk with her and, and I can be, I, I can be absolutely objective and, you know, and contain um, you know, conflicting ideas, entertain, you know, different, different angles to uh, an issue. And certainly um, I bring to the table more material than we can fit into a, a pod, a pod stream or a podcast. So, you know, if anybody really cares about it and they're really going to go away and try to reconcile it, that's, that's what I can offer is uh, there's nothing to buy. There's no book, there's no subscription. I'm going to post the, you know, my, my bibliography and the timeline, the timeline now has a PDF version inside of it. So if you want to just take it as a PDF, you can download it. Um, and the main bibliography. And I just want people to read the words, just read what they were doing. And you can sort out for yourself if you want to go any further with it. Um, but very recently, Dr. Kevin McCarran introduced me to a virologist. And she's, I think, amazing. And we're just starting the conversation. And she's right there in the kitchen, Matthew. She's meaning she does today. Um, she, she is a grandchild of the the activities and the techniques that were refined during that era so that's another fascinating connection that just i just came into contact with so yes please i'd be happy to to converse with anyone you'd like to to connect with and again if i if it's an area that i don't know about i'll take a lesson you know i i don't come with all the answers but i um i'm happy to always um embrace uh someone who has another view of it has um some you know, a, a question about it or doesn't believe it at all. That that's meaningful for me to understand where are they coming from? Yeah. Always, always, you know, no, nobody here is expected to, to have all the answers. Uh, you know, uh, certainly none of us do. Hopefully, hopefully that's a, that's, that is its own takeaway from any discussion that ever takes place here. You know, we're, we're all just trying to do the best we can. Uh, but thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for, uh, for your two plus hours of time and yeah, you're welcome back. And, and you know, thanks for everybody who's uh, who's been watching. Um, we had uh, about seventy people watching at one point um, uh, between the different streams, and you know, I hope everybody. Um, I, I hope there was a lot of you know fruit for for thought, or you know, uh, something to take away from here. I hope it was educational. That is the goal. And uh, yeah, um, welcome back, Gary. You know, we're, we're welcome welcome back in the future whenever you want to come. Well, thank you so much. I really have enjoyed it. And everybody, thank you for your time. Um, and I uh, look forward to the next conversation. Good night, everybody.